Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Today, we're going to conclude a sermon series that we have been in throughout the summer uh, on the book of Acts. Um, it's It's been a fun series. It's been controversial in some ways. Um, I'm, I'm glad that we've done it. I'm glad to turn the page as well, though. It's one of the longer series that we've ever done. For, for those of you who are new to the Bible, let me just reorient you to this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the Christian New Testament. We call them the Gospels, right? And they tell us the story of Jesus' birth, his life, his ministry. Um, during his ministry, uh, he actually predicts his death, which his disciples didn't like because that's not what a Messiah is supposed to do. He even predicts his resurrection from the dead, which everyone thought was crazy because people back then know what we know today, and that is that dead people stay dead. And yet, what's super incredible about the story, have you read it, is that he pulls it off. He predicts it, pulls it off, rises from the dead, has all this power and authority and now credibility, and he looks at his disciples and he's like, now I'm giving the authority to you. Go and make disciples of all the nations, be my witnesses, start the church, you guys got this, and bye. And then he leaves. And the gospels end. And if you're reading them, you're left with like this mega cliffhanger, wondering what comes next? How'd they do? Well, Acts is what comes next because it tells us the story of the birth, growth of the early church in its first 30 years or so. And we get to see it led by the people who knew Jesus best, his best friends, the disciples, and the people who likely knew Jesus' intentions for the church best because they were his, uh, his disciples. And I believe that Acts provides us today with a theological framework for how to do church in our day and time, even though we're on the other side of the world and the world is completely different. And so we should be students of Acts. That's the goal. If you guys remember, this is the diagram that's guided us. Uh, we've been doing some pretty intense Bible study on the ancient church, I'm trying to figure out how it overlaps though with modern issues that uh, you and I are struggling with. So we've talked about the trustworthiness of scripture. We've talked about diversity, credibility issues with the church, power dynamics, culture wars, everything. Today, to close the Acts loop and cover one final theme, I wanna talk with you about what may be the most uncomfortable topic of them all. Some of you are like, no way, it can't be more uncomfortable. Yes way, all right? Here's what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna look at Acts 4, 32 through uh, 37, one of the two idealistic snapshots of the early church. And we're gonna use that to ask and answer this question. How should a wealthy church, and yes, by global standards and by American standards, I believe Northeast Christian Church is a wealthy church. So how should a wealthy church deal with its money? Now, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead. Um, Tyler, yeah, thanks. Uh, quick question for you. Are you telling me that unfortunately I've showed up on a money weekend? <laughs> well, the answer to that question is, I hope you charged your phone. Because yes, we, yes, we, you did. You did show up on a money weekend. And you know what? I don't feel sorry for you. 
I don't feel sorry for just about anybody in this room. The only people I ever feel sorry for on weekends when we talk about uh, generosity are, are well, they're, they're the new people. If you brought your friend and finally talked them into coming to church with you for the first time and you've been working on them and now they're here today for the first time, um, I am sorry. <laughs> I'm so, so like, okay, so if you're that friend, if this is your first time, let's, let's, let's just chat for a second. First, you should know that, um, that we don't talk about money all the time, but you should also acknowledge that if you're here, you, you probably believe in God or that there's some sort of higher power. And if there is a higher power, well, we should investigate what he has to say about money. Money's powerful. It can destroy us. It can give us, you know, life. And so how should we leverage it? You're going to get to hear some of that today. Also, if you're new here and you're kind of like dating us right now, this is like a first date and you're like, is Northeast going to be my church? Can we, are we make it Facebook official? What's up? You should probably know how the church that you might become a part of thinks about money as well, right? What do we do with it? What do we think you should do with it? How do we manage it? And so you're gonna get to hear uh, all that today. And I can promise you this, you might not like it, but you'll probably kinda like it. And if you kinda like what we got to say about money, you should come back next week because you're gonna really like what we have to say about everything else. (laughs) See my logic? Okay, thank you. That hand in the back. All right. So um, l- let me start today with a little bit of review. And the reason why I call it review is if you've been at our church for more than a, a 18 to 24 months, you'll have heard some of, this, uh, uh, some of this stuff before. That's because every year and a half to two years, I think we need to come back and address it. My goal as a preacher of a church isn't to entertain you. Um, or it's really to entertain anyone. I think a lot of preachers feel so much pressure to come up with something creative or new all the time. And in my mind, that's not necessarily my goal. I wanna be creative and fresh and, and you know, make sure that we're applying ancient truths to modern issues. But at the same time, the goal is formation, the spiritual formation, the discipleship of this church. And in the name of discipleship, there's some things that we just need to create regular rhythms of coming back to. So this is a little bit of a coming back, but... Uh, it's, it's important. So first, I think it's important for us to acknowledge, American church, that wealth is the number one spiritual gift, number one, uh, of the American church. Now, um, Americans in the room, all my Americans, American friends and family, uh, we are not the best at everything. I know it's kind of an American thing to assume we are. We walk around a little swag in our step like America, you know? Like, but, but have you watched the soccer tournaments this summer, all right? Watch the Euro Cup, then watch the Gold Cup, and quickly you'll realize that we're not the best at everything. I'm just saying, like, and, and go beat Canada today, USA, but we're not the best. Now, we're not, our country's not the best at everything. On top, like, on top of that, let's take that one step further. The American church is not the best at everything either. If you've been to other countries, if you know churches or church leaders from other, other countries, I mean, it's, it becomes apparent fast. We are not the best at uh, evangelism or conversion. That is a statistical fact. We are not the best at discipleship or uh, spiritual formation. We're not the best at outreach, missions, church planning. We're certainly not the best at having courage in the face of persecution or endurance and steadfastness in the face of suffering. We're not the best. But there are two things that I think the American church is uniquely privileged and gifted with that we are at the top of the list on and we should leverage these for the good of the global church. One is education and all that comes with that. Very good at it. 
And two is our unique privilege and capacity to generate wealth. We're very good at it. And so I believe that that's something that we should leverage. Now, it is in fact a gift. Romans chapter 12, verse six says this much. Paul writes, in his grace, notice it's all grace, man. Every gift that we have is is a grace of God. I love that he starts with that. He says, in his grace, God has given us all different gifts for doing certain things. Well, uh, so if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak it. If uh, your gift's serving others, serve. If you're a teacher, teach. If your gift is to encourage, be encouraging. If it is, what's that word there? Oh, I dare you to, to talk out loud in church. What if, if, if be exci- act like you're excited about this word. Um, let me try this again. If it is, yes, give generously. If God's given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And uh, if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. But whatever your gift is, use it, use it. Now, just to clarify for you real quick, I think this is important. Uh, you should know, I don't believe you have to be rich in order to have the gift of generosity. You know, I know people who are rich, I know people who are poor and everywhere in between who are incredibly generous people. But here's what else I do believe. If you are rich, then you have the gift of generosity. You do. Because look at what all God has blessed you with. Let me say it a bit differently. It's a bit more passive aggressive, not so passive, just mostly aggressive. If you're rich and don't have the gift of generosity, then you have the vice of greed. And honestly, it's, it's your choice. Your money will either control you or you will control it, but it's up to you. Now, the reason why I say this is because I want Northeast to be a generous church. Not, not only is the number one spiritual gift of America its wealth, or at least it should be, but I believe that Northeast is one of the wealthiest churches in America. And I don't want us to be a greedy church. I want us to be a generous church. But it could be a spiritual strength for us. It also could be a spiritual weakness for us. I believe that right now we are a very generous church. Top one percentile on the face of the planet Earth. If you look at what people give to our church, if you look at how we distribute those, those funds around the, the community, and stuff, it's just so much to be proud of and praise God for. But I don't want us to become complacent. I don't want us to get comfortable or be content with that because I think we're just scratching the surface. All right, so th- let me just give you guys a little perspective because some of y'all lived here for a long time, all right? Uh, when, when Lindsay and I uh, moved to, to East Louisville, um, we've always lived within a, f- a few minute drive of the church. Um, it's less than 10 years ago. And uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock to move here, just saying. Okay, now, we didn't grow up poor. Uh, both of us grew up in preachers' homes, and, uh, and our church has always provided for us because that's what a church does, right? But we also didn't grow up wealthy. It was just kind of a rule, rule, preacher's home environment. If you're a preacher's kid, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Lindsay and I met in Cincinnati. That's where we got married. We lived for uh, three years. And uh, when we lived in Cincinnati, we lived in statistically the poorest and most dangerous community in Cincinnati. We lived in the hood, y'all. And, uh, and so when we pulled up to the Northeast parking lot over there on the other side for the first time, in our uh, 1990-something Toyota Avalon, 
that had over 200,000 miles on it. It was our most reliable vehicle and only two hug caps. When we left Cincinnati, he had three, so we lost one along the way, I swear to you. <laughs> it's not a joke. And then we parked it in the lot next to two Lexuses. I remember thinking, I've never seen two Lexuses before at the same time. <laughs> now, come to find out, two of the folks who drove those Lexuses are some of the most generous people in our city. But again, bit of a culture shock. When we lived in Cincy, we shopped at the Kroger right down the road from our house. Um, and it was a bit of a different experience. They rarely had fresh produce. Uh, it was, was kind of dangerous. Every month or so, there would be like a shooting or uh, you know, uh, some sort of homicide, um, e either in like the parking lot or the, the you know, alleyways next to the Kroger or in the neighborhoods right surrounding the Kroger. Literally, we didn't feel comfortable sending Lindsay to the grocery store after dark. So you can only imagine when we moved here and we went to the Brownsboro Kroger for the first time and they were selling sushi. <laughs> There's, there were two sushi chefs at the deli. I'm like, honey, what are they doing? Like, they're rolling California rolls. Like it's just, they were selling sushi. We're like, what planet have, we've been, have we been transported to? When, when I lived in, in Cincinnati, I had three jobs and uh, I was a full-time graduate student. Uh, Lindsay had a job working for the school and the reason why her job was so good was because uh, they gave us free housing in the girls' dormitory and uh, also a meal card to the cafeteria, which is some pretty big you know, uh, things you can knock off your bill that you don't have to pay for, right? And we still didn't have enough money to make it. The only reason we were able to pay all our bills is because my... Uh, my sister wrote us a $150 check. I don't know if I've ever told you guys that before. She'd write us a $150 check every month. We'd get it in the mail. So we'd pay our bills. The people who uh, I ministered to during that first season of our ministry were college students, rural, rural farmers and truck drivers and families and all of the different rural communities that I got to do interim ministries in. The church I did my internship uh, at in Cleves, Ohio, was literally right next to a massive trailer park. And those folks came to the church and they were beautiful people, gifted in their own unique ways, but they also had problems that aren't the same problems that I was ministering to just a few weeks later when I showed up at Northeast and was surrounded by some of the most high caliber business professionals on the face of the planet Earth. Hats off to you. So I, I remember... Uh, I remember one of the first pastoral appointments. This is not a knock. I'm not trying to guilt anybody. I'm asking you, don't laugh, giggle, chuckle, or roll your eyes and like some sort of smug, self-righteous person, all right? This is just reality. One of my first pastoral appointments, I remember going to Starbucks um, to have coffee with a really high-powered executive in our church. We were in a Bible study together that I was leading and we we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. We had just gone through Matthew 6. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says some stuff about money. Uh, he says, uh, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. He says, you can't serve two masters, can't serve both God and money. He says, where your treasure is there, your heart will also be. Pretty, pretty strong stuff, right? And so this guy was wrestling with it and he's like, I, I gotta talk to you, I gotta make some changes. Um, so we met at Starbucks and he's like, I got two questions for you. Two questions for you about, about my money. Uh, one, uh, when I tithe, uh, do I have to tithe on, on my gross or can I tithe on my net? Don't laugh. Seriously, don't laugh. Second question he said uh, is this. Does the money that I give to my kids' private Christian education also count toward my tithe? 
Now I can tell you this, just a few weeks earlier in Cincinnati, those were not the sort of pastoral questions that I was wrestling through. But I respected the man for it because he brought honestly his struggles. And you fast forward eight or nine years later and he's incredibly generous. He's taken huge strides in Christ. This is what I told him on that first day. I said, look, man, if you're trying to find loopholes in God's tax code, if the questions that you're asking are questions like how little can I give, you're asking the wrong question. You need to repent, change the way that you think, and instead start asking the question, how do I love the Lord, my God, with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength? And when you ask that, it totally reorients the way you see money and everything else. Right? Now, what's the point with you saying all this, Tyler? Here's the point. From the beginning, I knew, we knew that wealth could be a spiritual strength for this church or wealth could be the spiritual weakness of this church. And so we committed from the start that we would talk about it often. We would ask for it often. We would create beautiful avenues that inspired people to give and we would earn for ourselves a reputation as the Love the Ville Church because we would be so generous. And hats off to you, we continue to grow in our generosity. But again, let us not become complacent because we're only scratching the surface. Now, that being said, back to our original question then. How should, according to scripture, how should a wealthy church be dealing with its money? And specifically, how are we corporately and individually as a church dealing with our money? Well, let's go to scripture. I wanna give you a survey of uh, the many different times in the book of Acts where it talks about wealth and the church. I'm just gonna kind of slide through these here real quick. You'll get kind of the feel for how Acts and the early church dealt with it. And then we're gonna focus specifically on Acts 4, which is like uh, one of those ideal snapshots. First, starting in Acts 2. Uh, the early church sets a pretty strong tone from the beginning because the first snapshot at the birth of the church we see says that they handled their money like this. All the believers shared everything, they sold their property and they cared for the needy. How'd they handle their money? Well, they started like that. Uh, next, in Acts 4, as we will read in a second, it basically says the same thing as Acts 2. Then later at the end of Acts 4, we get an example of a man named Barnabas, who's introduced to us as a model of generosity. Now compare Barnabas in Acts 4 to Ananias and Sapphira, who we meet next in Acts 5, and we see that they're an exemplar not of generosity, but of greed. And you can go read their story on your own. In Acts chapter 6, we see the first official church ministry launched. And what was it? Was it a music ministry? No. Was it a children's ministry? No. Was it an adult Sunday school Bible fellowship? No. Was it a building program? No. No, the first official church ministry was a feeding program for widows. In Acts chapter eight, uh, we see Peter get into a scuffle uh, with a rich guy who wanted to become a Christian. His name was Simon. He was very famous. Uh, he was a magician by trade. And when he saw the power that Peter had, he wanted it. He tried to buy it. He basically tried to purchase franchise rights to the Holy Spirit, to which Peter said the following, to hell with you and your money. And that's a pretty good translation. Now, the reason why I point that one out is because anybody who's ever been in pastoral ministry before, you always feel this pressure uh, especially when you're dealing with somebody who's a giver at our church, not to lose them. So not only they're paying for your livelihood, but they're paying for the ministry of the church, especially over the last 18 months. 
right? Uh, there have been people who have not been happy uh, with me or our church. And here's, especially with wealthy folks, the first place they'll often go is this. They'll say, well, you're never gonna see another dime from me if you don't fill in the blank. Now the subtext underneath that is, if you want my money, you better bend the church or the truth in my way. And if that's you, or if that, you ever find yourself in that position with me, I just want you to know that I'm gonna quote the words of Peter to you. <laughs> and you can read them again for yourself. Uh, okay, Acts 9. Acts 9, we meet Dorcas. We meet Dorcas, she's praised for her benevolence. Acts 10, we meet the Roman centurion, Cornelius. He's described as a model almsgiver. Acts 11, um, we see the church collects a relief offering for a famine. Acts 18, Paul chooses to be bivocational while in Corinth, a tent maker in order to make more funds available for the needy. Acts 19, we see the Ephesian church burns idolatrous books that were the equivalent of like 50,000 days wages. So you see where they ranked wealth and money versus worship to God. Uh, Acts 20, we get an interesting Jesus quote. Did you know that there are red letters at the end of Acts? This is nowhere in the, in the gospel. So if it wasn't for Acts 20, we wouldn't know that Jesus said this. But in Acts 20, we see that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Then in Acts 24, we get this uh, interesting allusion to a, a Gentile offering that Paul's collecting for the Jerusalem church. Now, let me tell you the backstory on this one. Because if you read Paul's letters, this comes up a lot. Um, Paul's, one of Paul's main goals in ministry was to get Orthodox Jewish Christians to accept Gentile Christians into the family of Jesus without making them become Jews. He had two strategies in order to convince uh, these uh, you know, Jerusalem Christians. Uh, one was theological. He preached from the Hebrew scriptures that Jesus had fulfilled the law. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it was compelling. It took for most. Now, his second strategy was a more practical one, though. As he traveled around and planted and, and pastured all these Gentile churches, he took up an offering. And he told them, we are going to use this offering to go back to the Jerusalem church and care for their poor. And the reason why is because I want to show them that the Gentile Christians are ready to put their money where their mouth is. They believe that we're all part of one family of God. And I think that'll be persuasive to him. Basically, Paul says, look, when the Jerusalem church calls you a bunch of pagans, you just smile and pick up the tab for lunch. When they look at you and say, you're outsiders until you do this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, you just hug it out and drop a check in their offering plate. And eventually, eventually, it's either gonna drive them crazy or they're gonna come along and realize that we are in fact one family. Kill them with kindness. This is, well, not kill them, which are Christians. Convince them. Convince them, compel them with, with kindness. That was the strategy. And uh, over time it worked. Now, that being said, I wanna to read to you now Acts 4 because this is a great summary of all of it. In Acts chapter four, we get to see their, uh, you know, the early church's relationship with money uh, very, very clearly. Uh, starting in verse 32. Kind of this sort of idealistic snapshot of the early church. Verse 32, it said, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own. <clears throat> so they shared everything they had. Uh, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's great blessing was upon them all. Uh, there were no needy people. Wow, there were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. 
Uh, For instance, there was Joseph, uh, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi, came from the island of Cyprus and sold a field he owned. Brought the money to the apostles. It's the word of the Lord. Uh, Now, uh, quick snapshot for you. I wanna give you a checklist that sort of distills the four things that we see. Like half the passage is about how they handled their their money, right? Isn't that crazy? I wanna give you a quick snapshot of the four things we see that they did. You just kind of uh, walk your own self through this checklist. How are you doing? How's our church doing? First, it said they felt that what they owned was not their own. Do you feel that what you own is not your own? Second, it said they shared everything they had. Do you live as if everything you have is to be shared, just open-handedly with your stuff? Third, it says there were no needy people among them. Uh, Are there needy people among you? And last, it says those who owned land or houses, basically the wealthiest people in the community, would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. When's the last time you've taken a great step in faith like that? Now, here's our tendency. Our tendency when we're judging our own generosity is to do that comparatively. Our tendency, like as a church, this is my tendency as the leader of the church, is to look at other churches and say, well, we're pretty generous. A lot more generous than them. A lot more generous than them. We're in the top 1%. Or individually, our tendency is to look at the person to our right or left, look at our neighbor, look at those other Christians and say, I'm, I'm pretty generous. Look at how much more generous I am than them. But to be clear today, y'all, that is not the standard to which we've been called. A comparative standard. We haven't been called to justify our faith based on how we measure up or above other churches, other Christians. We've been called to the standard of the authority of scripture. One more time, four check boxes. This is Acts four. And if that's all we had to go by, I would encourage you, just ask yourself, where would you need to grow? Uh, Now real quick, just to check the temperature of the room. Um, Who loves this sermon? I love our preacher. You go, I love our preacher so much. And then they finally get him to come to church and he's done my money. Okay, now I'll, I wanna get more practical with you. And, um, and I'll, I wanna give you three really simple steps that I think up, I think some of the New Testament theology of generosity up. And this is what I'd ask you to do. I want everybody to take note of these. If you're good taking mental notes, that's fine. If you need to write them down, write them down. And then just do me this favor. Go home and prayerfully consider this week where you might grow. That's it. Just ask you to pray about it. Here's the first big point. First, when you read the New Testament, when you read about the early church one, you realize that they thought, in their minds, they thought that it's all God's. And by all, I mean 100%. Not just the cash in my purse, I show up on Sunday mornings. Not just the surplus after I pay my bills and Uncle Sam takes his cut. Not even just 10%. No, they thought it was all God. Okay, so, so let me speak on the 10% thing real quick because what you know about me, if you've been around here long, is I don't think the tithe is biblical. I actually think that both Old Testament and New calls us beyond the tithe to, to a higher standard. And that standard is this, it's all God's, so give self-sacrificially. Now, 
quick caveat to that though. If all Christians did tithe, I would be very happy. Just a few statistics for you. Did you know the average American Christian gives about 2.4%, which is higher than the average non-Christian, but it ain't 10. Uh, of 47 million U.S. Christi- uh, citizens who identify themselves as committed Christians, only 1.5 million tithe, 5% of churchgoers tithe. If all Christians tithe, somebody calculated there'd be an additional 165 billion available for the kingdom. Whoa, it's amazing. So if we all did tithe, I think it would up to Annie for the church's impact, but I think the scripture calls us even beyond that. Now, Bible study nerds, I wanna show, show you why this is biblical. This is not, oh, of course you think it's above 10%. You're a mega church pastor. Hold on to your purse, honey, okay, and let's head toward the door. No, okay, give me a second here. I'm gonna show you how the Bible says this. First, first, you need to know 10% was not the Old Testament expectation. It wasn't the Old Testament expectation. Bible math for you. Um, Leviticus chapter 27, verses 30 through 33, if you read it, it actually does mandate a, uh, mandate a tithe. It says 10% of all your produce and land and flocks should be given to the Lord annually. Numbers 18 says uh, that those offerings should be given to the Levites. 10%, right? Only problem is in Deuteronomy 14, which is also part of the Torah, it mandates another tithe. So now we've gone to 20%. Okay, 10 plus 10, 20. Okay, so it's another tithe of one's produce and flocks to be eaten at the central sanctuary annually. Um, if transportation provide, uh, proved to be prohibitive, then this gift was supposed to be exchanged for currency, which would then be used to purchase foodstuffs for the dwelling of the Lord. So now it's 20%. Only problem is it doesn't stop there either. Deuteronomy 14, 29 goes on to command every third year an additional tithe to be given to local storage and distribution centers um, that will distribute it to the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows among you. Uh, so Craig Blomberg, who's a biblical scholar, uh, writes this. He says, prorated, appreciate that, uh, prorated annually, this adds up to a 23.33% gift. And this doesn't even take into consideration things like Sabbath years, Jubilee, gleaning, and the culture of hospitality that the people of God had in the Old Testament. So you see, goes far beyond the tithe. Now, what about Jesus in the New Testament? Well, the New Testament really never talks about tithe. Again, the standard is, is the cross, self-sacrificial giving. But there is this one time where Jesus mentions the tithe. Okay, and I wanna to read to you this passage. And what I think you'll find is that while a lot of pastors rip it out of context and say, see, 10%, what you'll see if you, if you read the passage is that Jesus actually relegates the tithe underneath weightier matters of faith. So he's talking to some rich folks who are tithers. This is what he says. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, For you tithe, mint, dill, cumin. In other words, you tithe tithe down to the little herbs in your herb gardens. You tithe, he goes, but you have neglected the, what's what's that word there? Weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faith. It is these you had ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. Now, does that sound like an endorsement of the tithe? It sounds like he's raising the bar. Sounds like Jesus is saying that far too often those who are wealthy can allow the tithe to become a lid on their generosity. And again, slide into complacency. So to sum up this first point, what's what's the scripture say? Just really simple. Scripture says, God's the owner. He's the owner, it's all his. We're the stewards. Every good gift comes from him. And he wants us to invest his wealth in justice, mercy, and faith. That brings us to point number two. 
Second, the church practiced communalism. Communalism. What's communalism, Tyler? I'll explain in a second, but here's what it isn't. It isn't socialism. Now, every time somebody reads like Acts 2 or Acts 4 and I'm in a Bible study, they're like, that sounds like socialism because it's the redistribution of goods and this, that, and the other. And this is what I always want to say. I always want to take my pocket version of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto. I don't carry it in my pocket for the record. I've been called a socialist a few times over the last 18 months, so let me just clarify. It's on my bookshelf, though. And so I, I always want to hand them Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, though, and say, go home and read this, and you tell me if there is anything at all in here that sounds like Acts 2 or Acts 4, because it doesn't. It doesn't. Jesus, nor the early church, was socialist. Now, before all you American capitalists start clapping, though, let me just also say that Jesus nor the early church were capitalists either. Both of those are economic models that have come about 2,000 years later. And so when we try to apply them to scriptures, it's an anachronistic projection backwards onto the text. So what did the early church do? What did they practice? They practice what I would call communalism. This is what I would suggest for our own community. It's voluntary generosity based on the cross-shaped love of Jesus. They didn't force people to give. Because when you force people to give, that's not called giving, that's called taxes. There was no totalitarian regimes or pushing religion out of the public square, which was Marx. That wasn't Paul, that wasn't Jesus. At the same time, though, you should know that they recognize that when you leave people alone with their money, something starts to happen in their hearts. Money's powerful. It's deceitful. It can make people greedy and the poor suffer because of it. It's a different standard. It's a communal standard. The cross was the standard. So there was voluntary generosity based on the cross-shaped love of Jesus. If you read Acts 4.32 or Acts 2.44, uh, what you see is uh, interesting language that's almost the exact same words in the Greek. 4.32b, it says all the believers shared everything they had. 2.44, it says all the believers shared everything they had. The Greek word underneath those is which means they held all things in common, which by the way, raises the standard beyond just our money. It's all things, right? That means you're supposed to live open-handedly with your money, also your house, your car, your clothes, your food, whatever it may be, it's all God's, should be at his disposal so we can love him and love neighbor well. Which brings us to the last point here. One, two, and three, one, it's all God's, 100%. Two, they practiced communalism, important. And uh, three, the wealthy sacrificed big. Now, I... This is Bible talking here, okay? I wanna show you this. There's really no way to get around how many examples there are in Acts of wealthier Christians who were generous folks. Uh, in Acts 4, 34, again, we get Barnabas' example, but look at how Barnabas is introduced. It says, there were no needy people among them. There were no needy people among the church because magic. No, because the disciples were like Jesus and they fed the 5,000 by taking loaves and breads and just going, you know, like, no, that's not what it says. It says, because, there were no needy people among them, because those who owned lander houses would sell them, bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need, like Barnabas. Now I got three slides worth for you here, here real quick. Uh, you can just flip them through these three slides. Um, I'm not gonna read all these names, but I went back this week and just scanned through Acts and tried to write down every 
instance I could find of a wealthy Christian. And there's a lot of them. Ben Witherington, a New Testament scholar, suggests that the reason why Luke wrote so many wealthy Christians into the story of Acts was because perhaps Theophilus was a wealthy Christian and he knew that this wealthy patron, if he was compelled to give, could get a lot of ministry done. And so he just gives example after example after example after example. I don't know if that is in fact the truth, but what I do know is that it's an example for us today of how wealthy Christians played their part to make sure that the body of Jesus was healthy. All right, one, two, and three. It's all God's, 100%. Church practiced communalism, voluntary self-sacrificial giving, and the wealthy sacrificed big. This is how the early church operated. And this is how I pray we'll operate as a church. We have been given so much, right? Praise God for that. To whom much is given, much is required, So let's be the most generous church and let us constantly strive to be a more generous church. I wanna read to you just real quick a list of a handful of stories that I wrote down on Friday of different folks who we've been able to come through for this year thanks to the generosity of this church. This has been a tough year on so many people. And, uh, and these stories, I hope, will warm your heart like they have mine. First, as you guys probably know, when COVID hit and it shut down our weekend worship auditoriums, we transformed the lobby out there into a food pantry. Uh, f- over the first few months, we collected over 200,000 unique food and hygiene items. There was $130,000 given to a COVID-19 fund. And, uh, and my favorite statistic of that is that 250 individual families. This doesn't even count the 50 nonprofits that we were able to to serve through our pantry. 250 individual families, some who were a part of our church, some who told us they'd never had to ask for help like this before in their life. 250 families were able to come and get food from the pantry when they needed it the most. There's a family in our church who desperately needed a van to transport their eight-year-old son around in a wheelchair. And they could cover most of it, but they were just a little bit short. And so we were able to help with that. There was a lady in our church whose 37-year-old brother has cerebral palsy, uh, very debilitating. And his uh, parents who are in their 60s have been his caretaker. And they needed an elevator system in their house to get him from the first to second floor. We were able to help provide for that. There's a young man who was burnt by two churches in a row, lost his job, car broke down. It rains, it pours, right? For some reason, he turned to the people of Northeast and we were able to fix his car, help him feel Jesus' love again. One of our longtime members and most devoted volunteers this year uh, lost his mom. And the family needed just a little help paying for the funeral. So our church was there. A young lady in our church has parents who pastor in the Philippines. And their church didn't have enough money to feed their people during covid So we were able to write a $10,000 check and feed our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the world. A local counseling service was overloaded last summer with law enforcement officers and first responders in need of mental health care, some of them from our church. So we were able to write a check to scholarship, mental health care uh, for many of them. Uh, One of our sister churches in West Louisville had their HVAC go out last summer. And not only were we able to connect them with the Christian HVAC guy, but we were able to cover the tab so their congregation could get back together. 
High Point Charitable Services, which operates in LaGrange, had a dream to open up a center for counseling, financial courses, ESL classes, and Bible studies for the poor and underprivileged in their community. This year, we wrote them a $50,000 check, and they've already broken ground towards that. Uh, we had one guy in our church uh, who gave us some money to sponsor some students who couldn't afford to go to camp this summer, and we didn't use all of it. So we wrote him a check back and said, Here, here's the delta. And, uh, and he ripped the check up. I love it. He ripped the check up. And he said, go put it to good use somewhere else. I believe in my church. Last Christmas Eve, we set an all-time Love the Ville offering record by raising $1.6 to go back to our community. And in that offering, we received the single biggest gift I've ever seen in my life. It's a $500,000 check. Like when I, when I was holding, I was like, what is I've never seen anything like this before. Look at all the zeros. You know, it's just crazy, right? Um, and when I called the family to thank them, this is what they said. They said, don't thank us. Our business is one of the unique ones that did well through COVID. And we feel like uh, God's given us an opportunity to experience the joy of generosity during a time when people need it. Or how about this one? This is a personal favorite of mine. About three years ago, uh, my family, as well as a few others in our church, were able to help uh, Askulu and Riziki Kashendi, uh, and their four kids, a refugee family from the Congo, get out of the refugee camp and settle here in Louisville in partnership with Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Uh, that cost our church a few thousand dollars and us some hours of love. Helped them get in an apartment, get some furniture in there, showed them where the local grocery store was, got them enrolled into uh, a JCPS and took them to a loose city soccer game. Just introduced them to the city, right? And... Uh, We've kept that friendship up for a few years. And one of the most rewarding moments in my ministry life was two months ago when Asakulu sent me a picture of his fifth child, their, their newborn baby, uh, Tabi Shah, and also him and his wife holding a pair of keys because uh, they were able to purchase their first home. And, uh, <laughs> and it's all God and it's all him uh, and, and Riziki and their courage and resilience but I have to think that we played a little part in that on the front end, just helping a family get on their feet. He had the gifts and the dignity inside of him to do it all, but he just needed a little extra help. It's the business that our church is in. So look, uh, here, here's what I would ask you to do. Again, go review those, those three points, pray over them this week but I would ask you to leave today with a spirit of generosity. We have such a wonderful, amazing message, y'all. The message that love wins. That Jesus is risen from the dead. A new kingdom is being established on earth as it is in heaven today and forevermore. That's the message we got. What an amazing message. But how in the world are we supposed to get folks to believe that love wins if we don't love one another? How in the world are we supposed to get folks to believe that Jesus is risen if life isn't bursting from us? And how in the world are we supposed to get people to believe that a new kingdom has come if we aren't different than the world. We must be different than the world. So let us practice the radical form of generosity we see in the cross of Jesus. That said, I'm gonna invite Adrian to the stage and we are gonna remember Jesus' generosity by partaking of communion to close our service today. So Adrian, come on up.